Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Some Assembly Required, Chapter 3. From Some Assembly Required, A Neo-Surrealist Forsaking a Habit for Lent. Chapter 3 Gone But Not Forgotten The Rainmakers, The Good News, and The Bad News It hardly seems five years ago that Kansas's The Rainmakers made their last of three recordings. Publicity was churning hard for Spend It on Love as a single, and work was already underway for a live album. All those hearty expectations fell flat. Now, with rare exceptions like the Jayhawks, Midwestern rock has largely fallen too. Both culturally and politically, an important rock and roll voice is missing. I was thinking about Abraham Lincoln and the enemies of the truth, but I couldn't tell a Kennedy from a John Wilkes Booth. Reckoning Day. Two dreams make the world go round. The one you lost and the one you claim you found. Shiny, shiny. Well, I made a lot of money, got a lot of good press, writing paperback novels like a man possessed. Every name was changed, every story was true, every priest was me, every stripper was you. Hootie who? The Rainmakers didn't write songs about farms, floods, and family even though those elements surfaced throughout their work. Rather, they wrote about hatred and love, good and evil, and the intersections therein. In other words, they wrote rock music. The difference was the point of view. Rooted firmly in the heartland, the Rainmakers made common themes like divorce and greed seem real. Folk musicians consistently convey a sense of honesty, but few in rock and roll have echoed the integrity of the Rainmakers. I see a land divided down the middle and the sides are divided and divided again. I see so many, many people lonely, lover hating lover, friend against friend, and I'm alone. Yeah, I'm alone, and now I'm never coming home. I am a man without a country. I'm a boy without a home. Bob Walkenhorst, writer, The Battle of the Roses. Yak eg fry feli te om sav lik fa wala fa uv i wakfob ri one four four zero s o p. Dan O'Neill hated the trip to Kansas City more than any other. For some reason, his shortest circuit seemed as long or longer than the others, unless on occasion he could connect the Kansas City trip to Omaha business. The best route took him through Nebraska City. An hour of two-lane driving took the ease out of the interstate. One solace the Kansas City trip offered was Houston's. Dan wasn't alone in his feeling that Houston served the best stake in the Midwest. This night was no different. A waiting list of loyal customers stood between Dan and the next available table. How long did she say it would be? asked the man next to him at the bar. What? Dan asked. The wait. If I know how long she told you, 
then I'll have a guess about how much longer the wait will be for me. You see, I'm meeting somebody at 7.45. She said 45 minutes. Well, that should coordinate nicely. How long was it at your arrival? Dan asked. An hour. I'll tell you, this is the only place I'll wait at for an hour, he said, signaling the bartender for another drink. Dan looked around the bar. Light from the open fireplace in an adjoining room created a panorama across the, the canvas of tables, chairs, and faces. To his right, the counter disappeared behind a door to the kitchen. His eyes caught a waitress passing with a tray full of, he fancied, steaks and ribs. I'm Dan, Dan O'Neill, he said to his new acquaintance. No kidding, I'm a Dan too, Dan Thompson. I take it you live here in town? When I'm not in Washington or New York, this is home. Frankly, this is home all the time. I'm just not as home as often as I'd like to be. Tell me about it. My sales district includes Sioux Falls, Des Moines, and Wichita, with an occasional tour of Colorado. Where do you live? Lincoln. Football fan? It's the only perk I still have, Dan answered. As their conversation diverted into the particulars of Big 8 football, neither man noticed the tactical arrival of eight masked men with a variety of semi-automatic weapons. Two for Tabor. Your table's ready. Tabor, the greeter announced. A hush spread across the restaurant as many patrons began to identify the unmistakable signs of danger. Excuse me, a man's voice said over the sound system. I regret to inform the Tabor party of two that your table is not quite ready after all. Please remain seated. A woman from the side room, her face obstructed from Dan's view by the open fireplace, began screaming. The the sudden muffling of her voice led Dan to suspect the worst. He wasn't alone. As many as half the patrons arose to their feet at the same time Dan did. Some were hoping for a peek at what was happening. Others, like Dan, were investigating a possible exit. Those of you who are seated at booths, please remain seated, the man said through the intercom. Those of you who are seated on chairs, please stand. Probably Dan's most peculiar individual character trait was his hearing. He was introspective, so much so that he could make an entire room disappear. At times, the person seated next to him at a meeting might have to yell at him in order to break his trance. On the other hand, If he concentrated, Dan could hear the precise details of conversations carrying on through closed doors, even in interior rooms. Dan described himself as far-hearinged, much in the same way a far-sighted person can see significant distances with clarity, but lacks 20-20 vision at close range. Dan was quite comfortable with his unusual sense of sound. Quiet, the man whispered from the hostess's podium. Quiet. Four and five, circulate and spread the word. Two, find the manager and contact me immediately when you find him. Seven, follow behind and confiscate any cellulars. I'll make the announcement. The group of intruders quickly spread throughout the restaurant. Attention, ladies and gentlemen, the man announced over the microphone. This is not a robbery. I repeat, this is not a robbery. Despite how disturbing this may appear to you, we have no intention of harming anyone. However, I must insist upon your cooperation in a couple of vital areas. First, 
anyone who is presently carrying a cellular telephone or other communication device will immediately loan your possession to one of our stewards now circulating through the restaurant. Trust me when I tell you that these items will be returned to you intact before you leave this establishment. Second, any of you who is presently in possession of a firearm or, for that matter, a weapon of any kind, knives, mace, obviously guns, will also loan your possession to one of the stewards. Again, I assure you that these items will be returned to you unaltered with the greatest possible haste. Please note, and this is important, that anyone who fails to meet these two, frankly insubstantial, conditions will be killed. Now, it is not my intent to threaten or upset any of you in any way. As I said, this is not a robbery. I wish you all good health and continued wealth. Unfortunately, my hopes for your futures are tied conditionally to these two simple requests I am now making of you. Dan stood quietly. He did not carry any weapons. His telephone was mounted inside his car. As far as money was concerned, he was confident that nothing in his wallet was too valuable to be replaced, and yet the feeling in his gut was considerably stronger than mere uneasiness. He felt threatened. In fact, the danger he sensed was both personal and imminent. Two of the so-called stewards had already passed through the bar. They motioned to some customers, others they frisked. So far, Dan was being ignored. Two has not yet located the manager. Dan believed he heard in a hushed voice coming from behind the lush shelf of greenery. Example time? The man with the intercom voice asked. I don't know, perhaps we should lean on the staff a little first. There's no better way to threaten an employee than to threaten a customer in the process. Well, well, one, should we proceed with the assassination without first securing the office? Yes and no. If we use a silencer, we'll still have to make some noise on the way out. We might double our trouble that way. But if we complete our primary objective in a mere show of terrorism, at least we don't have to worry about rubbing him out uh, during the potential confusion at the end of our stay here. Uh, what do you think, Six? I agree. Fine. Let's take him down now. Publicly, but silently. Dan did not know how. By no means could he explain why. That he was overwhelmed by the sense that the target of this assassination would be him. I've never seen the eyes of these people before in my life, he thought. These aren't familiar voices, so why do they want to kill me? Dan wasn't asking whether he would die on this night. For him, the answer had become a foregone conclusion. His only hope was to influence the variables of when and where. Seven was passing through the bar again, holding his hand to his ear in a request for cellular telephones and other communication devices. He turned to face the plants that separated the bar from the door when the intercom was once again engaged. I have a message for any employee, or for that matter, regular customer, of this fine dining establishment. Your manager has not shown the appropriate willingness to take responsibility for the business that transpires in his establishment. With all the faces turned toward the eastern doors of the restaurant, especially those of the stewards, 
Dan slowly edged a path backward toward the swinging kitchen door. I believe, as a guest in this establishment, that any complaint I may have about the service I receive here should be addressed, in person, by a capable, attentive manager. That is, after all, the least one would expect. Please, staff, put yourself in my shoes for a moment. Although mentally hyperventilating, Dan paced himself carefully so that even his breath would not betray his movement away from the bar. I am a guest at your restaurant, and I have a problem. Please do not waste my time by inquiring what, if anything, you can do for me. Trust me when I tell you that my problem needs management attention. If my actions had failed in some manner to communicate the existence of such a problem before now, then I offer heartfelt apologies for what must have appeared to you to be an act of insincerity on my part. Dan felt his heel against the door leading into the kitchen. He paused for a moment to listen and to count. One was at the intercom, presently addressing the restaurant. Two was, supposedly, at or near the manager's office. Dan was taking on faith that the offices and kitchen were not within view. Four and five were in the non-smoking section. He could still see the back of Seven's head in the bar. Six, he presumed, was searching for him and probably had started in the smoking section. Dan could not account for the existence of eight or the possibility even of nine. Still, he figured his odds were 50-50, which he measured at double what they would be if he stood still much longer. Nevertheless, I'm being totally forthright in telling you that I do indeed have a problem, and that this problem will require immediate management attention. Now, just so you understand that what I'm telling you concerns my hopes for your future business success, as well as my own, I would like to pause here for a moment and share with you a proverb from the annals of business yore. Dan pulled the swinging door toward him by wedging his fingers between its rubber siding and the wall. By pulling the door rather than pushing it, Dan could increase his control on how the door closed. Once inside the kitchen, he figured he would either move freely or be shut on sight. What do you suppose happens to a business that ignores the complaints of its customers? Seriously, what does common sense tell us about businesses that ignore the complaints of honest customers? Well, two things. One is obvious. One, not, not so obvious. Once inside the kitchen, Dan timed himself at 20 seconds. He figured if he wasn't out of sight that quickly, his presence, or by then his absence, would be detected. This estimate created an added sense of desperation, though, because Dan was dismayed to discover that his images of walk-in pantries and vault door freezer entries were sadly overblown. At first glance, all he saw was an eight-foot ice machine that was nearly half full and covered with a sliding door. On the obvious side, a restaurateur who fails to address my needs will certainly lose me as a customer. I assure you, at this stage of my fine dining experience, your manager has already lost me as a customer. Not that I could not be persuaded to reconsider, but such a reconsideration will take some doing. 
On the less obvious side, the failure of your management team to ascertain and address my growing concerns as a customer will cost you. And of this, I assure you, the nation's leading business professors have no doubts. Other customers. That is right. If you cannot address the concerns of one increasingly irate customer, then those concerns ultimately may cost you the business of other customers as well. Dan pulled a large white tablecloth from a shelf beneath a cart filled with cutlery and silverware. Quickly covering himself in the sheet, he opened the sliding door and slid into the storage bin holding ice beneath an industrial-sized ice-making machine. At first, he feared the sound of shifting cubes would alert terrorists in the dining room. However, he didn't have time to calculate these factors. As quickly as possible, he had to bury himself beneath both the sheet and the ice. Then, he would have plenty of time to consider his probability for success and pray that any searching steward would see nothing but white at the bottom of the ice machine and find nothing peculiar about that. You see, manager, wherever you are, I am an honest customer. I am an honest customer with a problem. I am an honest aggravated customer who needs your attention. Without your immediate attention, my problem will cost you the patronage of a loyal customer. Please note that your cowardice has, by now, cost you not only me, but another lifelong guest. Six, he said, addressing one of his partners. Not yet. Two rooms to go, Six responded. Eight emerged from the foyer and loaded a silencer to the barrel of his handgun. Inside the office, at the south side of the building, Polly began pulling the drawers out of her desk's left side. Ms. Basehart was a young woman by most any measure, yet she was already enjoying the perks associated with long-term success. Her desk, for example, was large enough to sleep on. It was made out of solid wood, including individual shelves for each drawer. The path Polly was creating with drawers led to the open safe. Working at a paradoxically energetic and counterproductive pace, Polly was taping bills together in an effort to pull all but about $150 from the safe, with that mostly enrolled coin. She bankrolled two bundles of $100 each and put the remaining currency in a $76 bundle. She then pulled her scotch tape dispenser to the edge of her desk and picked up one of the drawers off the carpet. Ms. Basehart, a voice called from the hall, followed by a feeble knock at the door. No answer. Ms. Basehart? Who's there? She asked, her heart pounding at a dangerous rate. It's Paul. Yes? The people who came in here a few minutes ago are rather anxious to speak with you, he said. I've heard the intercom, she answered. I'm not alone out here, Paul said. Polly stammered. Paul, I threw up a few seconds ago. Please, Please apologize for me and tell them that I will be out in just a moment. I need to straighten up. Paul didn't answer. After a moment of observing silence through the bolted door, Polly returned to her project at an even more aggressive pace. One by one, she tilted each of the drawers atop her desk and taped a bundle of cash underneath it. Beneath her middle drawer, she taped an envelope containing most of her cash and every credit card except J.C. Penney and her oldest visa. The manager's coming out at any moment, two told one. Let's not wait, he replied, motioning for two and eight to return to her doorway. 
He then turned to Paul. What's your name and position, son? I'm Paul, a shift supervisor. Paul, I'm not the least bit worried about your telephone system, but does your manager have any other means of communication in his office? Not unless she has something in her purse. All the office has is a telephone and the intercom. Does she own a cellular phone? Could she have could she have something like that in her purse? No. You are an assistant manager, one asked. No, I'm next in charge after that. Listen carefully, Paul, because I have two life or death questions. Paul nodded while looking predominantly toward the floor. Is there an assistant manager working today? No. So I am stuck with you and your manager. Um, um, one said, prodding Paul for a name. Ms. Basehart. Fine. Does your restaurant employ the use of a silent alarm? No, we've never been robbed that I know of. Don't fret, boy. You still haven't been robbed. Polly straightened her skirt and looked again in her purse, which she left on the desk. She didn't want to arouse the kind of suspicion that surely would follow an empty safe or purse. On the other hand, her friend at Penny's could quickly cancel that credit card if stolen, and her first college visa card only carried a $500 limit. Two and eight knocked again on the office door, which Polly opened. Concentrate. Concentrate, she told herself. Don't worry about what they say or do. Worry instead about answers to the kinds of questions the police will ask. How many are there? What do they look like? Descriptions. Age, race, gender, hair color, eye color, any distinguishing marks or characteristics. What about their weapons? How would you identify that gun? Well, it seems larger than guns on TV. Maybe not larger so much as longer. Yes, it looks like it has two barrels, both black. It's a handgun, but not a revolver. All right, while you walk, if you walk with them, study their shoes, too. See if they are dressed. Are they in common uniforms? Where do you need me to go? She asked from the doorway. Polly wasn't sure she saw smoke from the gun. Of course, she wasn't sure her fall ended with a collapse to the floor, either. Her only conscious thought was that everything starting with her sight and ending with her sense of equilibrium, had completely lost anchor. Two and eight dragged her body back into the office and shut the door. Four and five returned to the foyer about the same time two and eight had completed their project. Has anyone reacted to our termination of the manager? One asked. Nothing worth any worry, five said. The screamer is still unconscious, four answered. Fine. We will need you by the front door. Shoot at will if it proves necessary to stop a panic attack. Project completed, two said, approaching the group. Should I relieve three at the back door? Yes. Wait for instructions from six. Just then, six emerged from the non-smoking section. Have we located dear Danny boy? One asked. No sweat, six answered. We got him on ice in the back. All right. All right, the programming director yelled. Let's get back to work and set up our features for the weekend. The secretary flipped back to the previous page in her notebook. Okay, Bill said, turning to face Heidi. Urban? Done, she replied. Jazz and easy listening? Together. Rap? 
tabled but unresolved. Half of us will work on a new jazz swing combo, the other half will put together a late night FCC special. Gangsta double shots. Fine, Bill said. Our remaining priorities are Roger Miller, Danzig, and classical music. What, are we now going to add Mother? Stephen asked. No, no, I think we're firmly standing behind Godless. Am I right? The room concurred without enthusiasm. Jim Morrison singing for Black Sabbath, Greg said sarcastically. Let's bait and switch again, Clive said. Every commercial break for the hour we can promote an upcoming Danzig song. Then, after leading the Virgin fan to expect the hit single, we smack them with Godless. Prime time, people. Prime time, the programming director added. How much play do we have to give Miller, Bill? Stephen asked. I think we have to go with an entire block, he answered. If we're going to take away the country programming altogether to commemorate the man's death, I think we have to do it right. Pardon my lack of enthusiasm, Steve said. If I may interject, Greg interrupted. Don't forget, gang, that we started this radio station as a pirate station. Songs that suck is a key element to our reign of terror. I find the fact that you dislike the music of Roger Miller an even more compelling reason to lay on four or five tracks in a block. So I guess the obvious point is, what do we pair with King of the Road? Bill asked. Something from Big River, I suppose, Clive said. Maybe dang me, Stephen said. Maybe we could play dang me backward. Now you're talking, Bill said. My only preference would be something from Robin Hood, Greg mentioned. People seem to have forgotten about his work for Disney. I hate that Udi Lolly thing, Bill said. I was thinking about the slow song. It's called, um, I think, Not in Nottingham. Sort of a blues number, right? Bill asked. That's the one. Fine. Let's move on to classical. Any opinions? Bill asked. Do we want to compare with Danzig or contrast? Clive asked. Contrast. Chopin, Clive replied. Solo piano, Stephen asked. More of a series of polonaises. Okay. You put together a block, say about 20 minutes, and we'll go with it. Bill said. One more thing, Stephen said, averting any adjournment. Did you see the column in this morning's paper? The music column? Yeah, not so much the review of Carol King or Pantera, though. I was thinking about the retrospective part, Stephen said. The Rainmakers, Clive said, bringing the other men up to date. The critic did a song and dance for their last album. So what do you think? Bill asked. Do we pull out Reckoning Day or Dry Dry Land? Quite the opposite, Stephen said. I resented the emphasis on the late songs. Let's dig deeper than that. Don't we have a live cut of Let My People Go Go? Clive asked. Yes, Bill answered. Well, then it's settled. That'll give the paper a little taste of our own gone and forgotten review. Are we adjourned? Greg asked. Yes, Bill said. Fill in the blanks, gentlemen. Final listings on my desk first thing in the morning. Cut to the goal by Benson with an assist from Wingate. That was a second period goal that put Franklin up 3-1. to one. And the final score? Jump to scoreboard. 4-3. to three. Our Jim Davies is at the rink and ready to speak with the winning coach. Jim? Live remote at the rink. Focus direct to Davies. Okay, a must-win game for the team today, coach, and you won it. Pullback medium shot of Davies with coach. We have a lot of work left to do. 
you know, as as you know, as long as we are four points behind Owen, we're still going to need some breaks. You did get some breaks today, especially in Hale's giveaways deep in their zone. Well, that's correct. They hung with us until the end. We did our best to just stay within reach of first place. Pan away from Coach, back into close-up of Davies. Four points down and two games to go looks tough, Mike, but the game of the season is head-to-head between the two division leaders. Return to studio, focus on Smith. Before next weekend, you would expect Franklin to handle Central with ease. Meanwhile, Omaha travels to Tecumseh, always a top-five team. Cut to the graphics of the prep standings. Roll-up chart to reveal dates, locations, remaining games. It's this simple. If Franklin wins and Owen loses, the next weekend will be a winner-take-all for the home seed in the state tournament. Return focus to Smith. Any overtime ties, though, it'll give the title to Owen. Pan away from sports to co-anchors. Background mug of president. Thanks, Mike. Recapping our top story. In the midst of an escalating CIA double agent scandal, the president insisted today that counterintelligence measures were initiated weeks ago at the start of the investigation. Directors of both the CIA and FBI insist that there is nothing to fear. Increased CIA and FBI cooperation would be an unexpected side benefit to this dilemma. Always seeking the silver lining, Deborah. Thanks, Simon. Pan back to a long shot revealing the entire set Fade in logo. Good night. In 1972, American TV networks canceled 12 TV shows for crimes they didn't commit. These shows were promptly forgotten by the public and faded into obscurity. Today, Chris Cooling researches these shows for a podcast. If there's a TV show that no one else remembers, and if you have earbuds, maybe you can listen to Forgotten TV. starting with a newspaper column about one of my favorite bands and one of my favorite albums from that band, The Rainmakers, and ending up with, uh, among other things, a uh, hypothetical independent pirate radio station with a mission statement to mix all kinds of musical genres together and present them in the most discordant way possible, made this um, an unexpectedly music-laden chapter. Weird to talk about things being unexpected, But the writing style of Some Assembly Required was always going to be a bit of a Frankenstein's monster. It was primarily focused on writing in as big a variety of styles and approaches as possible, and then pulling the pieces together, sometimes in obvious ways, sometimes in not-so-obvious ways. This one at least had the quality of being bookended on either side by, well, a focus on music. Before I get into the different drummer segment today, and the different drummer will be a prominent character in this story, Bob Walkenhorst, the leader and lead singer of the band The Rainmakers, makes sense for me to talk about the end notes for Chapter 3. References include the song Spend It On Love by Bob Walkenhorst, 1989. The song I Was Thinking About Abraham Lincoln is Reckoning Day, Bob Walkenhorst, The Rainmakers, The Good News and the Bad News was the album Mercury Polygram Records, 1989. The lyric, Two dreams make the world go round, the one you lost and the one you claim you've found, was Shiny Shiny 
by Bob Walkenhorst, performed by the Rainmakers, the album The Good News and the Bad News, Mercury Polydor, 1989. The quote, Well, I Made a Lot of Money, is the song Hootie Hoo, Bob Walkenhorst, the Rainmakers from The Good News and the Bad News, Mercury Polygram, 1989. I See a Land Divided Down the Middle, Battle of the Roses, is the song by Bob Walkenhorst, the Rainmakers album, The Good News and the Bad News, Mercury Polygram Records, 1989. Mother, sung by Glenn Danzig, 1989. Godless, sung by Glenn Danzig, 1992. King of the Road, sung by Roger Miller, 1965. Big River, musical by Roger Miller, 1986. Dang Me, sung by Roger Miller, 1965. Udi Sung by Roger Miller, 1973. Not in Nottingham, sung by Roger Miller, 1973. Reckoning Day, a repeat reference. Dry, Dry Land, sung by Bob Walkenhorst, 1989. And finally, Let My People Go Go, sung by Bob Walkenhorst, performed by the Rainmakers, 1987. I could understand the argument that after that particular fictional representation of a critic's review of the band The Rainmakers, that there might not be that much more to say about guitarist and songwriter musician Bob Walkenhorst. But I don't think that's true at all. Walkenhorst is, in many ways, a very good example of a different drummer, with both painting and books to his credits, along with the music. And the music itself is perhaps far more interesting then this uh, premature epitaph made it sound. Walkenhorst is a Kansas City-based singer, songwriter, musician, and painter, according to Wikipedia. After growing up in his hometown of Norbone, Missouri, he became founding member of the popular Midwestern U.S. root rock band, The Rainmakers. In the Kansas City area, he currently gives weekly performances and participates in art gallery shows. For some shows, he is joined by his daughter, Una, herself beginning a career as a singer-songwriter. As the singer-songwriter of his band, The Rainmakers, from 1986 to 1996, Walkenhorst's discography included five full-length studio albums, one live recording, and one best-of album. After the dissolution of the band, he released his first solo album, The Beginner, in 2003. In 2009, Walkenhorst and fellow Kansas City musician Jeff Porter released an album entitled No Abandoned, under the moniker Walkenhorst and Porter. The Rainmakers reformed in 2011 and have since released three more albums. Throughout his career as a musician, Walkenhorst has maintained a reputation for producing clever and provocative lyrics which have garnered him wide acclaim. I would say, leaving Wikipedia's perspective, garnered him worldwide acclaim. Among his biggest fans are Stephen King, who included lyrics from the song Downstream and Drinking on the Job, in his novel The Tommy Knockers. In Gerald's Game, King excerpted One More Summer, a song, citing Walkenhorst by name and adopted Walkenhorst's character, the Lakeview Man, in the service of the story. It's not just that the Rainmakers, and Walkenhorst in particular, have a huge fan in someone as well-known as Stephen King. In many ways, they're one of the bands, they're not the only one I know of, but they're one of the best examples of a band who actually has a huge following 
from a country. You know, there's there's uh, artists that I admire seem to have this character trait. The band The Fall, lead singer Marky e. Smith, was named as a different drummer in the second year of this particular podcast. Maybe the first part of the third year. Um, Iceland as a country really adopted The Fall as one of their bands early on. And Holly Cole, a jazz singer from Canada who's also been named a different drummer, has a uniquely passionate following in Japan. But I don't think I know of any other band who's got quite the following of a country as the relationship between the Rainmakers and Norway. Maybe the best way to kind of refer to that is to quote just a little bit from Rainmakers.com and their page called History. I don't know who the author is. I believe it's just credited to the band. It is, after all, their website. But quoting their article, it says this. Missouri has long boasted of being the home of two of America's greatest artists, Mark Twain and Chuck Berry. However, it wasn't until the Rainmakers thundered into the national music spotlight in 1986 that anyone combined the guitar power of Berry with the social wit of Twain into a unique brand of Missouri rock and roll. Originally formed in 1983 as a three-piece bar band known as Steve, Bob, and Rich, these Kansas City rockers became an instant favorite throughout the Midwest. Soon fans were standing in line to see this trio. They described as energetic, intense, but most importantly, fun. Within months of finishing their first independent release, Steve, Bob, and Rich had signed a multi-album contract with Mercury Polygram Records, adding a fourth member and changing their name to the Rainmakers. Heralded as America's great next band by Newsday, the Rainmakers were soon drenched in critical acclaim. I want to skip a little bit further down to a paragraph that begins, But success did not stop at the U.S. borders, as European countries supported the band increasingly with each new release. The song Let My People Go Go gave the Rainmakers their first top 20 single on the British charts. Critics abroad sang the band's praises, with feature articles in New Music Express, Kerrang!, Rock Power, etc. Frequently, the Rainmakers could be spotted on European television with live appearances on Top of the Pops, The Tube, and with video airplay on MTV Europe. European concert dates grew in number each year, with the Rainmakers often enjoying headline status on festival bills. Their reputation as an electrifying concert act eventually led to the recording of a live album at a sold-out show in Oslo, Norway, for release solely in Scandinavian markets. Coming to the end of the article, in 2010, after returning to his old stomping grounds in Norway with the duo project of Walkenhorst and Porter, Bob Walkenhorst saw that his music hadn't been forgotten by the old fans. 2011 will mark the 25th anniversary of the Rainmaker's debut album, and Bob saw the possibility of making it a special celebration with a reunion of the band. Original member Steve Phillips was too busy with his band, The Elders, so new member Jeff Porter took over on the guitar and vocals, the occasional piano, on the new album, 25 On, which was recorded in January 2011. In March 2011, the Rainmakers were inducted into the Kansas Music Hall of Fame. A spring tour in Norway followed, and the band continues to play around the U.S. in their old stomping grounds in the center of the country, or as I like to call it, in the heart of the heart of the country. The Rainmakers returned to Norway in January and February of 2012, and the band is currently booking festival dates for as late as June. 
I can update this story from a Behind the Music article that was released more recently, at least it appears more recently, than that particular blog post on the Rainmakers website. Timothy Finn wrote an article called Behind the Music, Bob Walkenhorst, and in that article, he basically starts it off this way. Bob Walkenhorst joined the Kansas City music community in the early 1980s, first as part of the trio of Steve, Bob, and Rich, then as the frontman for The Rainmakers, who would attract some national attention in the mid to late 80s. Nearly 40 years later, The Rainmakers are still active, and so is Walkenhorst. In addition to the band, he also performs solo and as a duo with fellow Rainmaker Jeff Porter. He is also part of a music project with his daughter, Una Walkenhorst. This summer, the Rainmakers will travel to Norway, where they have been revered since the release of the first Rainmakers album in 1986, this time for a final performance. Walkenhorst recently answered questions on In Kansas City about his farewell voyage, his association with author Stephen King, and the book of lyrics he will be publishing. I will almost end this here just by calling out that this article can be found at a website called inkansascity.com slash arts hyphen entertainment slash contemporary hyphen music. The article is Behind the Music, Bob Walkenhorst. Walkenhorst does answer the question a little bit more directly about Norway, saying, Our first show in Oslo was December 20th, 1986. It was the last date of our first European tour. Our album had only been out a couple of weeks. We played London, Paris, Amsterdam a day for two weeks, and no one had any idea who we were. Reception was not strong. The last date of that tour was Oslo, and we were so tired. We thought, let's get this over with and get home. But we arrived at a sold-out venue, people mobbing the stage, singing along on every song. What the hell? We love this place. And it's that love relationship between the rock music fans of a Scandinavian country and this band from the middle of America that really kind of caught my eye as I was rediscovering music that the Rainmakers had made after the first three albums that I eulogized in this fictional account called Some Assembly Required. It took me a little while to adjust and to sort of calibrate my mind around the fact that I was looking at a group that I had known and loved in their original incarnation that perhaps, maybe, was more popular now in Norway than they were in the United States. Well worth the time. In the interest of full disclosure, I have not picked up the book yet, Scribbling on the Walls of the Mansion, the lyrics by Bob Walkenhorst. I may yet do that if it's still available. It's uh, certainly on his website, bobwalkenhorst.com slash lyrics book, so you'd think that the lyrics book would be available for purchase. One reason that the sense of urgency might be just a little bit lower is that, at least for me, to my Midwestern ears, I've never had any trouble picking out the lyrics that the band was singing. I never needed a lyric sheet, in other words, to decipher the words, like you so often do with rock music. It's just, for one thing, it's one thing to know what the words are. It's a different thing to really peel the onion and the levels of meaning that they often find a way to convey. I was probably only scratching the surface in Chapter 3 of Some Assembly Required, in part because I was really only focused on one album. One other website I'll point us in the general direction to for this different drummer segment is rainmakers.com slash Bob's paintings. There may be other ways to view uh, his, his paintings over the years. 
The paintings here, according to the website, are on display at All Souls Unitarian Church in Kansas City. At least they were in 2019, as late as the end of November. This uh, website has links for the paintings that he completed in years 2007 all the way through at least 2015, but there might be paintings more recent than this. So, Walkenhorst, singer, songwriter, rock music frontman, father, father who's capable at his age of collaborating effectively as a musical artist in concert with his daughter, which is cool enough to be just a little bit hard to imagine. Um, definitely, from the perspective of range, a different drummer. And in many ways, if I look to the key figures that were inspiring this uh, Linton writing experiment all those years ago, the people who led me to do that exercise, the people who made their way into the final compilation of what turned out to be eight chapters, Bob Walkenhorst was a big part, especially a big part of chapter three. Now, I'd be lying if I didn't say that chapter three was also influenced by movies like Die Hard, for example. But Walkenhorst was the driving force, the bookend both at the beginning and the end of that. And when we first started, I had no idea that I would ever have a podcast or that the podcast would ever have shout outs to different drummers like Walkenhorst. I need to remember to leave time at the end of each one of these episodes just to talk through anything that might be quirky about the writing process. Because words on a page is also in some ways a visual medium. At times it's a little bit hard to convey where the words on the page are not intended to make sense. The uh, first thing after that music review was a little section of typing that was letters that uh, don't string together with actual real words. And it's actually a section that when I was titling the subsections uh, for chapter three, I called this one timed test. If you put your hands on the keyboard of a typewriter, a traditional QWERTY typewriter, and tried to type out something along the lines of now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of the country or their country. If you got that off, where instead of starting the first letter with the letter N, you started the first letter with the letter J instead. If you were just off on the keyboard in a really consistent way, you might be able to calculate your words per minute, um, but your words per minute would be nonsensical instead of literal. It does call to my mind one more thing I'd like to mention at the end of this particular chapter. Words per minute was once an, a poem that I wrote. It came, I believe, a few years after this Linton writing experiment. But some of the poetry that I've shared in the past on inappropriate conversations, like number 93, Poetry Providing Perspective, some of those are also available as standalone, where I've either re-recorded the poem or pulled the clip out of the podcast. The best way to find the poetry in isolation is at soundcloud.com slash IC underscore Greg. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.